Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Much of American democracy, it turns out, runs on precedent. How things have worked in the past help us understand how they ought to work now. Many parts of our democracy function because years of established norms guide them. But sometimes that precedent and those standards face the courts, a chance to take long-standing norms and codify them into law. We saw one of those moments at the Supreme Court this week. See, presidential electors cast a vote in the Electoral College that ultimately determines the presidency. These electors usually, almost always, vote for the winner of their state's popular vote. So if Donald Trump wins the popular vote in Oklahoma, for example, all of Oklahoma's electors vote for Trump in the Electoral College. But in many states, it's just an assumption that electors will vote as they've pledged. That's how it's always been done. And that leaves open a question. What happens if an elector decides to go rogue, to cast a vote in the Electoral College for someone else? And furthermore, what happens if those changes, if those votes go against the people's votes and alter the outcome of a presidential election? The Supreme Court Monday weighed in to quash some of those questions before they arise. The court ruled unanimously that states can require presidential electors to support the winner of its popular vote and may punish or replace those who don't. Now, this decision carries weight for our upcoming presidential election. But what exactly are its implications? Who are the winners and losers in this case? And what does it mean for the future of our electoral college system? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To learn more about this Supreme Court decision and its effects on November's election, I spoke to Paul Smith, an expert in election law and the vice president for litigation strategy at the Campaign Legal Center here in Washington, D.C. I wanted a clear understanding of how presidential electors work. So I started there. What exactly is a presidential elector? An elector uh, is one of the people who ends up deciding who our president is, uh, we don't actually vote directly for the president in this country. We elect people who then meet in December and cast ballots for the president. And whoever gets more than 270 electoral votes becomes president. And let's just do a quick refresh on why it takes 270 electors to win. Each state has a specific number of electors based on how many representatives the state has in Congress. So you take the number of members of Congress plus the two senators that each state has, and then that's the total of how many electors the state gets. Washington, D.C. also gets three electors. So in total, it all adds up to 538 electors. And 270 is the majority of that. So you need 270 total electoral votes to win the presidency. That's the Electoral College in a nutshell. Now, given that these people, these electors, are the ones who physically cast this coveted number of ballots for the president, who are they? How are these electors chosen for the role? Well, they're party loyalists chosen typically by the state party, maybe by the campaign in conjunction with the state party. They're not people anybody's ever heard of, typically, and they really have only one function, which is to go to the state 
Capitol on the day designated by law to cast their electoral votes in favor of the party's nominee. That's that's all they do. And there is a formal process. There's a ballot. There's pieces of paper that get then sent to Washington, D.C. and opened in January by the Congress when the electoral votes are formally counted. Prior to this recent Supreme Court decision, how do electors ultimately decide which candidate they award their vote to? What is that process? They are uh, designated as the electors for a particular party and a particular party's nominee. In most all states, they are essentially uh, pledged in advance to support the party's nominee, whoever that might be. In most states, they actually formally are, are legally pledged. And in a couple of states, Nebraska and Maine, they do it a little bit differently. They allocate the electors corresponding to the representatives based on who carries each of the representative districts in the state. Each of those states has two members of the House. And so you can end up with a split electoral college decision in Maine and Nebraska. But everywhere else, it's winner-take-all statewide. So with the exception of Maine and Nebraska, the winners of the popular votes in each state then win all of the electoral votes for that state because the assumption is that each of these electors will then designate their vote for the winning candidate. But have electors been obligated to give their vote to the winner of the popular vote historically? That varies by law from state to state. The assumption has been since the early 19th century that that's what they'll do. Uh, that that's their only function, that they're mere placeholders. In some states, most states, they're pledged. They take a kind of oath that they will vote for the party's nominee. There are some states that don't have any law on the books, but the assumption in all 50 states is that electors will vote the party line. But there are instances over the history of the country where electors have not voted for the party's nominee. These are so-called faithless electors because they break faith with the assumption and, and the pledge that they make that they will be party supporters. Their votes have always been counted, probably in large part because it's never made any difference. It's always been a handful here and there, really a small number over the whole history of the country. It's never changed the outcome of the presidential election. Of course, it could if electors chose to switch sides in a year when the Electoral College outcome is very close, as it was, for example, in 2000 when Mr. Bush was running against Mr. Gore and the outcome of the election once Bush got the, the electoral votes from Florida was only by two, three votes. In theory, they could have changed the outcome of three or four electors if they had switched to the Gore side instead of the Bush side. It's totally fascinating to me that the 2000 election, as you say, was decided by this very small number of electoral votes. And in 2016, we saw seven electors across the nation cast these faithless votes. So it really is something that could potentially affect the outcome of a presidential election, even though it historically has not yet. That's right. So let's talk specifically about the Supreme Court ruling from Monday. How did this case reach the Supreme Court? What were the details of the case itself? There were some electors in 2016 who didn't vote for their party's nominee. The case that was before the court in which the, the opinion got written was a case called Chiafalo. came out of the state of Washington and it involved some electors in a state who, where the Democrat Hillary Clinton won the state. But they decided that they would cast their electoral votes for somebody else, specifically Colin Powell. And this was part of an effort to uh, try to lure some Republican electors in other states to switch to Colin Powell and deny an electoral college majority to Donald Trump in the hopes that maybe it would go to the, the election would go to the House of Representatives and maybe somebody like Powell would win. It was kind of a long shot hope. It didn't actually lure any Republican electors to to do the same, but. They did cast their votes in Washington for somebody other than Clinton, and they were, after the fact, they were punished. They were fined 
And they argued through a lawyer, famous uh, well-known lawyer, Larry Lessig, a professor at Harvard Law School, that punishing them for casting the vote the way they did is unconstitutional. The original understanding of the Electoral College in the Constitution as it was framed in uh, 1787 was that electors would have discretion, that they would be people of judgment, and that they were kind of a buffer between popular sovereignty and the determination of who would actually be the president, and that laws passed by states to uh, not just get a a formal pledge but actually make that a legally enforceable pledge was contrary, those laws are contrary to the original intent of the framers and that therefore electors should basically be free to do whatever they want. The idea was that uh, the Supreme Court would say electors simply cannot be told what to do when they actually get into the the room and vote on the Electoral College voting day in December. The Supreme Court unanimously rejected that idea. The primary opinion was written by Justice Elena Kagan, and she said that neither the text uh, of the Constitution nor the history of how we've run elections here for more than two centuries supports the notion that we're going to let electors be free agents. To the contrary, she said, if states want to demand that they pledge in advance to support the party nominee and want to make that law effective through sanctions of one sort or another, including potentially replacing them so that the right vote will be cast by somebody else, that's all okay, not a, a violation of the Constitution. The hope had been on the part of the electors that they would appeal to the more conservative justices who, who would espouse a constitutional philosophy often called originalism uh, that focuses on the original intent of the framers. And the theory was maybe we can say to them, we have to go back to the original idea of the Constitution, even though for more than two centuries Everybody has pretty much assumed that electors are mere placeholders who simply do a ministerial function, an automatic function. The court basically said, uh, we don't see anything in the text that deprives states of the power to make the, the pledge enforceable. And we've, since the country's operated pretty well for 200 and some years this way, it would be folly for us to change course now. So we now know states can, if they want to, not all states have, they can basically make voting for the party nominee mandatory. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Now, when you talk about the original intent of the Constitution, do you mean that the founders may have intended for electors to be able to make their decisions to buffer the will of the people and decide who their vote should go to based on their own gut or based on who they thought should have won in their given state? Was that the original intent? That was the idea. And actually, for in the early part of the, of the history of the country, we didn't really even have presidential elections in a lot of states. The legislatures would simply pick the electors and have them vote. And and there were some framers who said things that suggested that they thought the electoral college was kind of a buffer, that there would be discretion exercised. But the Supreme Court said, well, that may be what they thought or assumed, but they didn't put anything in the words of the Constitution to mandate that. And they could have, but they didn't. And so we are not going to take away the power of the states to make the party nominee support mandatory. 
All right, then let's talk about the real implications of that decision. Does this ruling now mean that in every state all electors must vote with the popular vote, or is it more nuanced than that? There could be some variation depending on whether states have exercised their power to demand a pledge and make that pledge mandatory. The most effective way to make it mandatory is to do what Washington will be doing this year and what Colorado did in 2016 and actually replace the elector with somebody else who will cast the vote in the in the correct way. So there, there may be some states where people could theoretically still be faithless electors, although there's one reading of the opinion of the Supreme Court that even without a state law affirmatively requiring it, a state could still come in and demand it later on. What I think we're going to see is a much diminished uh, risk of the electors exercising any of the kind of independent judgment that these Washington state electors did uh, back in 2016. That's generally a good thing because the idea that we're going to have these people who no one's ever heard of operate as free agents and start cutting deals or maybe getting bribed or threatened to change the outcome. That's a prospect that sounds pretty scary. And it certainly scared the court at oral argument, both Justices Alito and Justice Kavanaugh said, well, I'm inclined to follow the let's avoid chaos uh, theory of constitutional law. Why in the world would we want to open up this can of worms? We have enough problems with our presidential election system without turning all of the outcome over to these people no one's voted for directly, no one's ever heard of, uh, and we don't know who they are or what they might try to do. So uh, it's generally uh, one less thing to worry about in November. Right. And just to clarify one point, does this decision mean that the states are required to do this? Are states now required to mandate that electors go with the popular vote? Certainly states are not required to do anything. They could, if they thought it was a good idea, send electors to vote without having had a presidential election in the state at all, and they could turn make them discretionary. And But in terms of what states have done is most states, 32 at least, have required formal pledges that, that the elector will, fo- will follow the, the outcome of the election. And 15, I think uh, Justice Kagan's opinion said, have these sanctions that make it uh, enforceable. I think what we may very well see between now and the election is more states passing these laws just to be as clear as possible uh, that the electors are not free agents. So these changes would have to happen in state legislatures. It's not like a secretary of state can just decide that all electors must vote with the popular vote. No, no, it has to be done by state law for sure, by a legislature. If the court has now said that states can choose to mandate how electors vote, why even have these electors at all? And I realize this is a huge question about the electoral college in this country, but it seems like this decision has essentially said that electors don't really have freedom of choice. So so why have them at all? A lot of people, and I'm one of them, think that we should get rid of the Electoral College, not because of this problem of faithless electors, but because the winner-take-all feature means that you can have presidents elected with less than half the vote, finishing second in the popular vote, finishing first in the Electoral College. If you win a lot of states narrowly, you get all those electoral votes. You could be very far behind in the popular vote and still be elected. That is a reason to get rid of the Electoral College. Um, This would have been an additional reason to get rid of it if the electors were threatening to be kind of free agents. In fact, the lawyers who pursued this case were pretty open about the fact that they actually want to get rid of the Electoral College. And the reason they were trying to get the Supreme Court to bless the right of electors to be free agents was because it would make the Electoral College even crazier and perhaps motivate people to finally do what they can to stop electing presidents this way. 
And just to be clear, the winner of the Electoral College can still be the loser of the national popular vote. This court decision doesn't change anything about that. You'd have to either amend the Constitution or there is a thing called the National Popular Vote Compact, which is trying to get enough states to sign on that they will cast their electoral votes for the National Popular Vote winner. The theory is if you get enough states to agree to do that, you effectively have produced a a popular vote system rather than an electoral college system. Now, I have to admit, when I saw this ruling, it was confusing to me who were the winners and losers here. Who is this a victory for in the world of election reform? Is it a victory for electoral college advocates, for those who want to see it gone? How does this fit in? What's interesting, it's a unanimous decision, so it doesn't have any real political salience. Uh, It doesn't seem to be ideological. And it probably hasn't had much impact on the future of the Electoral College. I guess the lawyers on the other side who wanted to cut the electors loose probably, as I said, thought that that would be so crazy that maybe it would promote Electoral College reform of the bigger kind. But generally speaking, I think what this is is a victory for people who want the election to work and have the vote of the people be controlling and make the democracy a little less uh, unstable and a little more predictable. All of those seem like very good things. Now, a unanimous decision, as you mentioned, seems fairly unusual for the Supreme Court. Why do you think this issue drew such consensus among the justices? I I think they all basically saw that it doesn't make any sense after two centuries to go back to some imagined idea of the Electoral College serving as a buffer from the people. And they knew that it would be enormously unpopular if the people were suddenly told their vote didn't really control the outcome. They knew as well that there could be chaos if the electoral vote count were very close. Imagine, if you will, the the election is won by three votes, uh, by one candidate or the other. Suddenly, those 500-some electors become the most important and powerful people in the world, or at least in the country, for a few weeks. They can start cutting deals. They can start taking large gifts. They might be threatened in their homes. Any number of things would be possible. And all of those prospects were put before the justices, and they said, whoa, Why in the world would we want to open uh, this kind of a can of worms, this kind of a Pandora's box, when the country's been working just fine over the couple of centuries with the assumption that the electors simply do a very automatic function? They don't really aren't exercising any uh, independent power. So it's just a very practical result, I think. All right, last question for you. We are living in an era of political norm-breaking, as we often capture here on this show. And what's notable about this decision is that it seems, in part, the court chose to take up this case now ahead of the election as a way to prevent ambiguity in our election process. And you've spoken to that. Why may this decision prove to be particularly important come this November? The court did know that it needed to decide this issue before the election. There were two different decisions out there, one from a federal court in Colorado and one from the state Supreme Court of Washington that were in in conflict. There was some uncertainty about what the right answer was. And on top of all the other things that can go wrong with a presidential election, especially in a time of pandemic, we didn't need to have this prospect as well, the unpredictability of what individual electors might choose to do after the election. We already are facing um, concerns about polarization, about the difficulty of getting people access to the ballot in the time of pandemic, really slow counting of the votes after the election, so we may not know who won for 
a week or more, a lot of claims of fraud. It is a daunting prospect trying to get between here and the inauguration of a president on January 20th. All of that is bad enough, but we don't need to have this part of the system, the electors themselves, thrown into the mix as an additional complicating factor. All right, Paul, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to learn more about a different recent decision out of the Supreme Court, it's ruling that the Manhattan District Attorney can subpoena Trump's tax returns, listen to Thursday's episode of our daily news podcast from The Washington Post. It's called Post Reports, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, if you like this episode or you learn something new, share it with someone else who you think might like it as well. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 